0: Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? If you have, then you know that it is impossible to capture the beauty and the grandeur of that place in a photograph. It isn't possible to reproduce the breathtaking panoramic effect of of that massive deep canyon that goes on for as far as the eye can see. It it isn't possible to Reproduce that sense of awe that it creates in your soul when you're standing on the edge of that gigantic gouge that has been carved out of the earth's crust, almost 300 miles long and up to 18 miles wide and over a mile deep. It isn't possible to reproduce the colors and the smells and the sounds and the atmosphere in a photograph. The difference between the original and the copy of it captured in a photograph is bigger than the Grand Canyon itself. Now, I want you to hold on to that idea. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Now, although we have already been making reference to covenants in our study of the letter of Hebrews, covenants are going to be a major focus in the next couple of chapters. In particular, the contrast between the Old Covenant and and the New Covenant. And before we dive into that, let's talk about what is a covenant. In simple terms, a covenant is an agreement between two parties outlining their respective rights and responsibilities. Examples of covenants in our everyday lives, a loan agreement between you and the bank is a covenant, which describes how the money that you borrowed from them is to be paid back. What happens if you fail to pay back that money? Uh, restrictions on how the bank can go about getting that money from you, and so forth. Marriage is a covenant, a promise, an agreement between two people, pledging lifelong faithfulness and commitment to one another. In the Bible, what is referred to as the Old Covenant is the covenant that was established between God and the Jewish people through Moses. It's also referred to as the Law. We talked a little bit about this last time, too, but it's good for us to repeat this so that we have it in our mind. This covenant is largely described and defined in the books of Moses in our Bible the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God established this covenant with the people of Israel, and it was through this covenant that the people approached God, uh, carried on their worship of God, constructed their life and relationships with one another, and got their sense of national and personal identity. The covenant was central to all of life for the Israelites. Now, what is referred to as the new covenant is the relationship that we can have with God made possible through Jesus Christ. It is through this covenant that we can now approach God, worship God, construct our lives and relationships with one another as members of his new community called the church, and get our own sense of identity this covenant is central to all of life for the follower of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 7, the author talked about how Jesus is superior as a priest compared to the Levitical priesthood established through Moses. In Hebrews chapter 8, the author continues that discussion and begins comparing the covenants that are associated with Jesus and the The Levitical priesthood. Now, that may not sound very interesting to you on the surface, but don't check out yet. You might find some of this interesting before the day is out. So, let's begin in Hebrews 8, verse 1. It says, Now, the main point of what we are saying is this We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. In other words, he's saying, I've talked with you about a lot of stuff having to do with the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek. But the thing I want you to really get is this, we really do have a high priest like the one being described In the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, who is literally sitting at the right hand of the throne of Holy God in heaven, he is serving at the real tabernacle that God himself set up rather than in a tent copy pitched by people on earth. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. The author has already explained to us in Hebrews 5.1 that it is the duty of the high priest to offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people that he represents before God. As with the high priest of the Old Covenant... Jesus, too, offered something on behalf of the people, and what he's offered is much better than what they offered. Well, what is this something that Jesus has offered as our high priest? Himself. Himself is what he's offered. Jesus Christ, the perfect human being, willingly gave his perfect life as the perfect sacrifice for us which has saved his people, obtaining for them a perfect salvation. Hebrews 7.27, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. If he were on earth... He would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law, the Old Covenant. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The Levitical priests served at a sanctuary that was a copy and a shadow of the real one that's in heaven itself. That word translated copy, it means something patterned after the original. An analogy is the baseball field that little leaguers play on is a copy of the field that the professional baseball players play on. That word shadow It means an imperfect representation of the original. If all you saw was my shadow cast on the sidewalk, you could probably tell that I was a human being, but really not much else. You wouldn't be able to say what color my hair is, what my face looks like, or even my height. The shadow provides a very crude outline of who I really am. And in a similar way, the sanctuary and the activities of the Levitical priests that they carried out were only a shadow of the real sanctuary of God in heaven and the real priestly work that Jesus does. We can barely imagine what that real sanctuary in heaven is like. Photographs of the Grand Canyon, as beautiful as some of them are, are nothing compared to the real thing. They are a crude copy, shadowy outlines, very limited representations of the reality. Referring to the various religious ceremonies and observances of the Old Covenant Jewish religion, Paul wrote this in Colossians 2.17. He said, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. God gave Moses very detailed instructions about what the tabernacle was to look like, the materials that it was to be made out of, how it was to be constructed, the dimensions and everything else. It describes that in the book of Exodus. It was extremely important that Moses follow the Lord's directions explicitly and with the greatest care. The tabernacle he was building was a model of the real tabernacle in heaven. To use the baseball analogy again, it's important that the little league baseball field be built according to the right plan so that the players will be able to play the game of baseball. Even though the baseball they play is only a copy of the big game that they play in the big leagues, if they built that little league baseball field so it was like a tennis court rather than a professional baseball field, then it would be very difficult to play baseball on it, wouldn't it? And anyone who moved up to the big leagues after playing on that little league baseball field that was like a tennis court, they wouldn't have a clue how the game of baseball was really to be played, would they? Well, God designed the various ceremonies and things of the Old Covenant so that when the Christ came, we would be able to recognize and understand what Christ was accomplishing for us through his death and resurrection. When the old, with, with the Old Covenant, God was giving us a photograph of the Grand Canyon, so to speak, so that when we see the real Grand Canyon, we're able to recognize it, even though the photograph hardly does justice to the real thing. And so the Old Covenant was this photograph giving us a picture of what the reality of the real Christ was doing for us in heaven. Verse 6 says, But in fact, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. The ministry <clears throat> excuse me, the, the ministry of the priests at the tabernacle <clears throat> at the tabernacle that is a copy of the real one in heaven was deserving of honor and respect. It was God himself who gave Moses the plans for how it was to be built and how things were to be done there. But the ministry that Jesus performs at the real tabernacle in heaven is far superior. The word mediator is a legal term which refers to someone who arbitrates between two parties, helping them come to an agreement Another term that could be used is go-between or middle man. Jesus Christ serves as the perfect mediator between God and humanity. He represents the interests of both parties perfectly. Jesus is intensely jealous, I mean, intensely zealous, I mean, to see that the justice of holy God is satisfied, that God's honor and his holiness and his perfection are preserved. At the same time, Jesus is equally driven to seek our acquittal before the judgment seat of Holy God, to obtain forgiveness for our sins, to take our punishment upon himself, to pay our debt to the God of the universe, to free us from the bondage of sin and death. That mysterious nature of the incarnate Christ, it serves to illustrate this idea of him being a mediator in Christ God and humanity are joined together in this mysterious union. Theologians refer to it as the hypostatic union. The Christ is both fully God and fully human. And it's not possible to dissect Christ into this is the God part and this is the human part. He is mysteriously a Complete and perfect unity of those two. And as such, he's able to perfectly represent both God and humanity, perfectly suited to be mediator between us. So, verse 7 says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. In Hebrews 7, 18 and 19, which we have looked at before, the author referred to the old covenant as weak and useless because it made nothing perfect. Remember we talked about it last time. It was not able to truly save us from our sin and remove the separation that exists between us and God, allowing us to draw near to God were the words used and transform our nature to be like Jesus. The Old Covenant was effective at pointing out and highlighting the huge division that exists between holy God and humanity because of our sin. The ceremonies and rituals that were repeatedly carried out under the Old Covenant with the various cleansings and sacrifices, the limitations put in place to keep people away from the things declared to be holy, all served to remind us that there was an unbridgeable gulf between God and us. He is holy and we are not, was the message that was repeatedly spoken to us through all of the old covenant stuff. He's holy and we are not. The commandments that were given as part of the old covenant, they're good. The Ten Commandments, for example, which are part of the Old Covenant, represent good and right behavior. The problem didn't reside in the commandments themselves, but in our inability to keep the commandments. That's where the fault lies with the Old Covenant. This is the fault with all religion that depends solely on human effort. Humans are broken and unable to pull off perfection. The Old Covenant had no power to truly change a person's life in both the physical and the spiritual realms, affecting both our present and our future, even beyond death. Uh, We noted before, religion in general and self-help programs and things of that nature can sometimes help a person make positive changes in their life in the here and now. The author is not discounting those things. But none of those things have power to change anything outside of and beyond this present physical life. Only Jesus Christ has the power to change our spiritual position and condition. Only he can bring us near to God. Only he can make us perfect. Only he can give us eternal life. Only he can give us forgiveness for our sins before God. Only he can save us now and forever. So a second covenant, a new covenant, was established. And verses 8 through 12 is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where the promise of this new covenant was made through the prophet Jeremiah some 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Verse 8, It says, But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. But God found fault with the people. As mentioned just a moment ago, it was not the old covenant itself that was the problem. The people were unable to fulfill the requirements of the old covenant. We were the weak link in the chain. We were unable to fulfill our covenant obligations. God kept his side of the covenant. The other party, however, humanity, failed to perform. Through the establishment of the old covenant, God convicted the whole world as guilty, and through the new covenant, he offers mercy and grace to the whole world through faith in the atoning sacrifice of his son Jesus. Romans 3.19 says this same thing, like this. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law, the old covenant, says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscience of, conscious of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It says here in verse 8 of Hebrews 8, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I first just want to say really quick, this quotation from Jeremiah, it mentions the people of Israel and the people of Judah. But from many other scriptures, including the one in Romans that we just read, we know that this new covenant is available to all people, not just to the people of Israel and Judah. So this is this covenant is addressed to all of us. Not only did Jesus come to fulfill the old covenant, but he came to establish this new covenant between God and the human race. This new covenant, it promises to bring us into God's presence and to give us new natures free from the frustrations and the weaknesses of the sinful nature that we're born with. So in verse 9 it says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them to Them declares the Lord. He says it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. He's referring to the covenant that was made with the Israelites at Mount Sinai in the days of Moses which is described in Exodus. The point being made here is that the new covenant is not simply a patched up version of the old covenant, it's something that's completely new. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, I turned away from them. The people didn't remain faithful to the old covenant, which we've just been talking about already. So God turned away from them. The blessings that were intended for them, they couldn't be given because they had broken the covenant. In Deuteronomy 28, for example, it, it lists these blessings that would be given to the Israelites if they kept the covenant, and it lists these curses that would come upon them if they failed to keep the covenant. God wanted to bless them in this very special way, but they needed to keep the covenant for that to happen, and unfortunately, they didn't keep the covenant, and so they did not receive all of the blessing that had been uh, promise to them says this is the covenant i will establish with the people of israel after that time declares the lord and this is the covenant that he will will establish with all people i will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts i will be their god and they will be my people no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another know the lord because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. There are four distinguishing characteristics of the new covenant that are mentioned in these three verses. I want us to take a look at each of these. First, God will put his laws in their minds and write his laws on their hearts in verse 10. The old covenant laws had been written on tablets of stone stone and given to Moses on Mount Sinai. In contrast, under the new covenant, God will write his laws on his people's minds and hearts. Jeremiah's prophecy looked forward to a time when people would not simply obey an external set of rules but would be transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. And God's laws would be indelibly marked on their innermost being. It would be a part of them. The prophet Ezekiel describes this new covenant in a similar way in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Second, it says God will be their God and they will be his people. In verse 10, he will adopt them as his own sons and daughters. Now, this was the intent of the old covenant too, but in an earthbound way. God had chosen the Jewish people from all the peoples on the earth to be his people. But now, under the new covenant, God makes a far more dramatic promise. He will adopt us as his children for eternity. Under the new covenant, we have the opportunity to have a relationship with God that people under the old covenant didn't dream possible. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, you might remember he told them to address God as our Father who art in heaven. That was a revolutionary idea, to speak to God in such a personal and intimate way. But through Jesus, God becomes our Father. In Romans 8.15, Paul tells us that God is now our Abba because we have been adopted as his children. Abba was the Aramaic word used by a child for their father. In 1 John 3, 1, John marvels at the love of God for us because we can now be the children of God through Jesus. Third, in the New Covenant, they will all know God personally, no matter who they are, from the least of them to the greatest, in verse 11. Knowing God will not be confined to a select and privileged few, but will be available to all. All those under the new covenant will have a first-hand, personal, intimate relationship with God. Galatians 3.26, Paul writes, "...so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith." For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there male and female, for you are all one Christ Jesus. And finally, fourth, God will forgive them not remembering their sins in verse 12. God's wrath will no longer rest on them. Our sins are completely removed. In 1 John 2, 1, John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. These are the better promises mentioned in verse 6 of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant depended on the faithfulness of the people. The New Covenant depends on the faithfulness of the Lord. That's it. People could not keep the demands of the Old Covenant. Any covenant that depends on us is doomed to fail ultimately. Don't mean to injure and wound your human pride, but the only kind of covenant that will succeed is one that depends on God rather than us. But because he's the only one who's truly capable of keeping the covenant. This is what makes the new covenant perfect. It's dependent on the perfect one. Finally, verse 13. It says, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Those who are in Christ are no longer under the old covenant. They're under the new covenant. It says the old covenant is obsolete and outdated. The author will begin to explain what that means in chapters 9 and 10. We'll take a look at that next time. In closing today, the blessings of the new covenant are available to everyone who is in Jesus Christ. That's the one condition that God places before us because Jesus Christ is the only one who can maintain and fulfill this covenant. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, why do I have to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and follow him? I mean, why can't I just be a good person, try to do the right thing as much as possible in life and follow my own path and be, and be good with that? You can do that. No one is going to stop you from doing that. But here's the thing. I want you to think about when you die and God asks for an accounting from you, are you confident that you will be able to fully justify yourself before him? I'm not that confident about myself. I don't want to be judged on my merits. I know I will be in big trouble. And this is not a case of me just having low self-esteem. It's a case of me being honest about who I am and how I have lived my life up to this point and having a realistic Evaluation of what can be realistically expected from me for the rest of my life. I need forgiveness and grace and mercy before God. I don't want justice. I don't want justice. I want grace and mercy. I want the merits of the good life of Jesus to be added to my account. Maybe you don't think you need that. But if you do, the invitation has been extended to you by God. His new covenant invites you to come. In the new covenant, God has made a promise to you that he will forgive all your sin, give you a new heart like that of Jesus, adopt you as his child, and you will live with him forever. All of that comes through Jesus Christ.